Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from Tucson, Arizona, as my family and I continue our, our trip around the country. And I'm thrilled to welcome Joanna Curtis, who's the Chief Advancement Officer at the University of Memphis. And Joanna was telling me that this is her second podcast appearance, the first being on her sister's podcast, which I want to know more about, and also that her husband is a prolific podcaster in the Memphis sports community. So uh, it's a family affair. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Joanna, I always like getting to know our guests, but instead of just sort of saying, uh, tell me about yourself, I have started to ask people about their own college journeys. And so I know that you went to McAllister College. I would love to know a little bit more about your journey uh, to McAllister and some of the experiences that stand out. Um, Where'd you grow up and what led you to McAllister? Sure. So I grew up um, just outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, in Arden Hills, Minnesota. So McAllister and the idea of staying in the Twin Cities was not at all on my radar. Um, <clears throat> I looked at Whitman in Walla Walla, Washington. I looked at Bard in Annadale on Hudson. So, you know, I was planning to get away from Minnesota. Um, but after, and my sister and brother, who are both several years older than me, they went to Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. So that was also off the plate for consideration. But after I looked at a lot of colleges, you know, did the kind of traditional college trips with my parents to, to look at places um, all around the country, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, McAllister is just the right fit for me. And my parents said, if you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. <laughs> And it was definitely different being in the heart of St. Paul versus out in the suburbs where I grew up. Um, and of course, it was the campus community that mattered more than the larger location because being at a small liberal arts school, you're very embedded in that couple square blocks. Um, people from all over the country and the world came to McAllister. I was really drawn to it because of its internationalism. You know, McAllister loves to talk about Kofi Annan having being one of our alums. Um, they flew the UN flag on campus, made a very big point about the internationalism. And they had a, a, a real focus on service and how do we as students and then as graduates of McAllister College give back to our communities um, to the world in a, in a positive way. And so that really resonated with me. And I certainly found that to be true during my time at Mac. Um, and it was definitely the right fit for me. And I met my husband there. So that worked out too. <laughs> and have you uh, stayed in touch at all or uh, stayed involved? Yes. So um, I am a donor to my alma mater. Um, I've also been a volunteer um, this is, you know, now in today's era, there's less of a need for this, but for students from the Memphis area who were interested in McAllister, but weren't able to make it to campus for um, tours and interviews, I did interviews with students here in Memphis. Um, and on a couple of occasions, certainly when we've gone back up there, We've taken our kids to campus. I've met with some of their advancement folks just to stay connected with people that are in the same industry. Um, and now our 16-year-old daughter, she's been on campus a couple of times, and we're hopeful that maybe she'll consider Mac uh, when she's deciding. There you go. Yeah. Coming full circle. 
Very cool. Well, uh, it's a great community and we've been fortunate to get to know many of your uh, fellow alumni uh, throughout our, uh, our journey. There's actually a great uh, investor in Boston. Um, maybe you cross paths. His name is TJ Mahoney. He played basketball at Mac. He was a 99 grad. And, uh, and he's been a great supporter and mentor of ours. Um, I think he, he scored something like 1,999 points or something like that. That's his claim to fame. But uh, yeah. anyhow, um, so you, you went to Mac and uh, graduated. What next? It looks like um, you uh, uh, always curious to know at what point on your journey did you even know the field of advancement or development was a thing? Right. I'm not sure for me when I realized, you know, I think the idea of alumni giving was sort of very prevalent in my undergrad experience at Brown, but I didn't know that it was a profession necessarily until sometime after. I'm curious for you when that um, was introduced and kind of what your initial perspective uh, was on the field. Right. So um, sh shortly after I graduated, just a few months after I graduated, my now husband and I moved to Memphis which is where he is from. Um, we were looking for a change of scenery and Memphis made sense because uh, his younger brothers were here. It was warmer. We were kind of done with Minnesota winters. Uh, so we landed in Memphis without any real clear plan other than we're out of college now, what are we gonna do? At various times throughout college, shortly after, I thought I might be an Episcopal priest. I thought I was gonna be a chef, like just, um, and when we moved to Memphis, started out temping and then managing a bookstore coffee shop. And that's what the launch point was for me to get into development. Uh, we lived a couple of blocks from the old main library in Memphis and had an unreliable car. So having a job that was easy to walk to was a priority. My husband had really fond memories of the main library when he was growing up and he would visit his dad in Memphis he would go to the library and get a bunch of records, take them back to his mom's in Arkansas and um, listen to all these records. And so he had really fond memories. So I thought, well, that sounds like a place I might like to work. So I applied for three different jobs. One of them was development. I had no idea what that meant. That's the job I got a call back for and got interviewed for. And that's the job I got. Um, because I had been doing book signings at the bookstore and events, that was what uh, the, the director who hired me, that's what interested her was that I would be able to help with donor events, um, stewardship events, things like that. So I, I remember they asked me in the interview a question about fundraising experience or my perspectives on development. And I paused and said, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, so, but the library was a great fit for me. And once I understood more about what development was, you know, that was very, as I said, it was organizing events, more annual giving, intro, introductory level um, development work. And at the time we were in a campaign to raise money for the new main library. So I got capital campaign experience, um, working with a campaign committee, working with foundations and individual donors around the community. So it was a fantastic experience. I moved up there, ended up moving to another organization where I became the director of development. And at that point, I kind of hit pause and took some time to reflect on whether I really wanted to be a fundraiser. Um, it was 
you know, as I said, I didn't even know what it was when I started in the job. I, I was at an organization that I really believed in the mission of, but I didn't consider myself someone who would be a natural fundraiser. Um, I'm, you know, a pretty quintessential introvert. And it seemed to me at that point that being a fundraiser was really about being very extroverted and engaging people at events and kind of the wine and cheese sort of thing. And my, I'd only been doing annual giving sort of stuff at that point. So the idea of transitioning to more of the major gifts, cultivating individual donors was kind of scary. So I took some time out and um, met with a career counselor, did a whole bunch of those Myers-Briggs sort of tests and the results came back and said that I should be a fundraiser. Uh, what I realized then was what really mattered was that I was at an organization whose mission I really deeply believed in. I'm not someone who, um, I, th I don't think it would be very successful being at an organization that was not where I was sort of putting it on that uh, selling the mission and the purpose to donors. The organization I was at at the time is an outstanding, very well-known nonprofit that does a great work, but it wasn't something that I was really passionate about. And so it prompted me to move on to another educational organization um, that was public education reform. That was a much better fit. And from there to the University of Memphis. Um, so it really mattered to me that I found an organization whose work I could spend all day trying to convey to people the importance of. Well, I wanna talk more about that. I really appreciate the backdrop. And I would like to know a little bit more about the career coach experience that you had, because uh, we recently hosted uh, uh, Chris Schaefer, who was the Senior Associate Dean for Advancement at MIT Sloan. She has now um, moved into a career coaching role uh, as she has sort of identified a gap around kind of coaching in the advancement space. And mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like you went to an advancement coach necessarily, no. but rather a more general career coach at this inflection point in your career. But I wonder what caused you to do that um, and what benefit that might, where do you even start? If there's somebody listening to the podcast who's a few years in asking themselves, mm -hmm. is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, just tell me a little bit more about that because you don't hear as much about coaching in the advancement sector as you do in other, in other spaces, I think. Yeah. And uh, to your point, the coach I met with was definitely not someone specifically in the advancement space. Um, I mentioned that when I left college, I had ideas about what I was going to do that were as varied as being a chef or being a priest. And I was a double major in history and religious studies. I didn't go to college with a, the idea of, of necessarily coming out of college with a career in mind. Um, it was, you know, quintessential liberal arts experience. I learned to think, I learned to write. Um, I learned to, you know, engage with people and be a productive citizen, but that didn't point me to a job. And so I didn't take advantage in college of the career counseling services at my, at, on campus. Um, and so it wasn't until a few years later that I realized I need to, I need to pause and think about what, the, what I want to be doing with the rest of my life. 
So, you know, in retrospect, I wish that I had taken advantage of those services. I don't know if the outcome would have been any different because I was still leaving college without a lot of direction. Who knows how they could have pointed me in one. It was getting those few years of ex work experience under my belt that gave me the chance to say, okay, this is what I've learned that I, I like and I don't like. So I, there, was a, there was a nonprofit in Memphis at the time, I'm not even sure that it still exists, that happened to have career counseling services. And um, someone I knew mentioned that they had used that service. And so I just looked it up and, and found the, one of their career counselors. I went in a little skeptical about whether, you know, would this person be a good fit for me? Um, and I think what was most important, she was great, was that it gave me a platform to really pause and ask questions and think more deeply about what it is that I was doing all day. And just that space to stop and reflect and have someone asking me these questions was enough at that time for me to allow me to think ahead to what would be yeah. a career. I mean, inertia is so powerful. And I think especially mm -hmm. early career when you didn't necessarily have this track or this vision of what you wanted to do, one thing can really lead to another. You're in Memphis, which is where you're going to be. Um, so to be able to really take that conscious pause, um, it sounds like that really allowed you to then with conviction now really attack uh, a career path that before mm -hmm. had just sort of emerged organically. I do wonder right. though, you know, when you think about the liberal arts experience and some of the, you know, meandering discovery that is, mm -hmm. is part of the, um, I think, benefit and value proposition of the liberal arts education, but mm -hmm. also one of the biggest critiques of the liberal arts education. Right. Um, should you have, you know, should, should there be, and maybe there is now, but should you have been able to reach back out to McAllister and say, hey, look, I'd like to, you know, I didn't really take advantage of career counseling when I was on campus, I'm a, you know, still relatively recent alumna, um, can you help? And, and maybe they could have, but is that part of the role? Or even as you think about your 16 year old daughter potentially applying, how much does that matter? Um, you know, as you think about the changing role and the changing promise of a liberal arts uh, education? Yeah, well, um, that brings two thoughts to mind. Number one is, I graduated in 1997. So by the time I was having, I was thinking about this, you know, it was 2000-ish and there was, it was not as accessible, the career counseling office. Right. It had been email, which may have, you know, still a little clunky. It would have been phone calls. I, I didn't, I wasn't close to campus. I think now it would be a lot easier. It's something I think about a lot being at a university where I work that is very different from McAllister, a large regional public university. And I think we'll talk more about this later, but you know, the mission and purpose of a regional public is very different than a small private liberal arts college. And we fairly recently launched an alumni career services program because our student career services program, they've got We've got 22,000 students, um, about 17,000 undergrads. That small office doesn't really have the capacity right. to do a lot for alumni, but we know that we have a lot of alumni, especially right now, who have been affected by the pandemic, who could use some guidance and some input. Um, I think it matters a lot that that is quality 
guidance and input from people who know what they're talking about and can really provide insight around resumes, interviewing those experiences, but having that resource is something that's really important to our alumni now, for sure. Yeah, I think it's such a um, massive opportunity that is also so challenging because the reality is, I think historically at least, um, career services has probably been viewed as more of a cost center, right? When you think about where are the revenue centers on a campus, you've got uh, enrollment, you've got advancement, and then maybe there's some you know, research or commercialization partnerships in certain regards, but really it's about enrollment and advancement. And I think um, at the same time, there's such a correlation between uh, alum young alumni and alumni who feel like their career objectives were supported more directly by their institution that then leads to giving. Um, but it's kind of this, you know, perpetual challenge where, um, you know, how do you not just have an alumni career services program, but how do you make sure that um, it is as proactive in engaging recent graduates and, you know, mid-career people who are mm -hmm. seeking support um, as we are engaging, you know, major donors who could really mm -hmm. support funding the institution. And obviously the ratio of, you know, major gift officer to uh, top tier prospect is going to be different than even the most well-resourced institutions ratio of alumni career services staff to alumni. And I think, you know, I guess part of my question would be, how do you avoid trying to boil the ocean and really think about, okay, if this is a new initiative in alumni career services, it is a new budget line at a time when budget is really tight. We can't help everybody probably in the way that we want to how do you really prioritize? Is it about first gen? Is it about, you know, the last two classes? I mean, do you have a sense? Maybe it's too early to even say. I would say that it's definitely a work in progress for us, but, you know, going back to my comment about, I was kind of going through this experience myself before there was a lot of technology to support it. We do now have a lot better technology. Right that we can provide our alumni access to. And in that case, it can end up being that we're more of a portal where if somebody comes in, we can direct them to useful platforms that help with um, engaging with other alums who can provide them with uh, mentoring, you know, mentoring may be too specific of a term because we may just be talking about making some networking connections, but we have, and this is where it fits in to some degree with our advancement fundraising program, we have successful alums who want to be able to help other students and young alumni. And so it is to our benefit to provide those avenues for those alums to give back to the people that came after them. Um, it helps them feel more connected and more likely to give, and it can help our students and young alumni to take advantage of other tigers out there that want to help them. I love it. And can you tell me, I mean, you just talked about the mission, right? And, and I think the mission of a regional public versus McAllister, very different. Um, yep. Yet you were, it sounds like, very passionate about McAllister's mission and yep. equally, if not more passionate about the University of Memphis's um, mission. And there are probably... Uh, folks listening who are working at their alma mater, where it's a mission and a context they're super comfortable with. You went to a city where you didn't really know anybody. Uh, you didn't know probably too much about the University uh, of Memphis, um, but it's it's a place where you've been for now 
uh, over 10 years, I think maybe 13 years, uh, and you're clearly really passionate about it. Why is that? Just tell me about your journey with the University of Memphis. And I think in a sector where turnover is so high and people do tend you know, to have to almost jump from one institution to the other to advance their career, you've been able to really advance to the top leadership role over a you know, decade plus um, experience and stay passionate. Uh, like you said, you can't fake it uh, with the supporters. So just tell me a little bit more about that. So I think that there's a connection between my passion for Mac and my passion for the work I do now at the University of Memphis. And that goes back to McAllister being an institution that really promoted the idea of citizenship and being a productive member of, this, of society. And at, McCall at the U of M rather, I really do feel every day like the work the Advancement Office is doing not only makes a difference to individual students who benefit from scholarships that are provided by donors, but their families and the larger community. Memphis, you know, the through line for my career has been Memphis. You know, my, my husband and I have lived here for 20 years now. We ra we're raising our family here. And there have certainly been different points in time where we have thought about going somewhere else. You know, higher ed fundraisers are in demand. There have been certainly been opportunities where we could have gone someplace else. Maybe we would got, went back to Minnesota where my family is, but we really feel like Memphis, the larger city of Memphis needs us and that we're really making a difference every day in a community where there is a lot of poverty in Memphis. We have a lower than you know the national average uh, college attainment rate among the population. Um, there's a lot of challenges in this city, and I really believe that the University of Memphis is one of the solutions to those challenges. Most college graduates in the Memphis area um, graduated from the University of Memphis. We are by far the largest higher education institution in the city with 22,000 students. We have some excellent smaller colleges and universities. Rhodes College, which I live about two blocks from, is very similar to McAllister. Um, couple thousand students who do great things, but it's 10% of the U of M's population. And 40% of our students are low income. Almost 40% are first generation. Um, we are a majority minority institution at this point. And all of those factors point to the difference that a college degree can make for our students, for our families, and the, and the effect that has on the larger region. Um, that's, so that's really, those are the values that McAllister really promoted. No, that is super powerful. And I think that, you know, your comment about feeling like the city needs you, um, a lot of the challenges you referenced uh, in the city, in the population in Memphis were there before you arrived mm -hmm. and they will be there after you arrive. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you clearly feel a sense of progress and impact. And my question would be, when you think about moments where you feel like that impact and that potential is being realized, where you've been able to, you know, with your husband say like, wow, like we, like there are big issues here and there will be big issues here, but we mm -hmm. are changing lives in the interim to the extent that we're able are there memories that stand out where you just have felt really energized? Like we are tackling some issues. We're not solving them, but we are improving day by day. 
Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things come to mind. The first is, you know, one of the questions you asked in advance uh, of our conversation today was a, a memorable gift. And the one that absolutely comes to mind for me was um, around 2009, 2010, I read an article in the Chronicle about a donor in Texas who was making gifts for first-generation college students. Before that time, I had not given a lot of thought to the idea of what is the experience of a first-gen college student outside of race, income, those factors. And I went to my then boss and said, hey, what do you think about trying to reach out to this family foundation? And he was, absolutely, let's go for it. So we took it to the provost um, who also gave the green light, but it was really not something that was at that point part of the day in day out conversation, certainly in the advancement division, but even at the university overall. And through that process of working with that family and getting, preparing the university to ask them for a gift, I really got to know first-gen college students at the university because I wanted to be able to understand their experience as I was talking to the donor. I got to know better. I hadn't been in the university very long at that point. And I got to know a lot of the faculty and staff that were working with the, this student population. And when we got that first gift, which was a million dollars to provide scholarships and other support for first-gen college students, that was definitely a point where I thought this is going to benefit dozens and dozens of students over the years. At this point, it's been hundreds of students because we've maintained that relationship. They've made additional investments in the university. And now first gen, and this is true industry-wide, that's a, a central part of the conversation that universities and colleges are having. You know, how do we better support first-gen college students? They're less likely to graduate than their continuing generation peers. And that investment by that family and the time that me and some other team members spent working with them really crystallized for me the value of a regional public university, which may not be now, the, the university's reputation has certainly grown over the past several years, thanks to our standing leadership and having a really clear vision of who we are and where we want to go. But even before that, that was a time that really um, solidified for me the idea that a regional public, which may not have the same kind of academic reputation as an Ivy, as many small liberal arts school, or even land-grant universities like UT Knoxville across the state can make an incredible difference. I love that. And um, I have to just ask a little bit more because the most profound part of that story for me is the origin. And to imagine you as a relatively new member of the team reading the Chronicle and then actually deciding to reach out. I mean, think about how many advancement professionals read that same article, but didn't reach out to that family foundation, even though their institutions were maybe also mm -hmm. in the early innings of uh, first gen impact. I mean, is that really how it works? You read an article, you reach out to a foundation and you have a multi, you know, year, multi-million dollar relationship that affects thousands of students. I mean, like that to me is 
kind of the most amazing part. And I feel like there are so many examples having done this podcast now uh, over 50 episodes where that one little initiative Mm -hmm. really leads to millions of dollars and thousands of lives being changed. Um, Yet it would have been so easy to read that article and say, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then read the next article. And it's like, how do you think about when to pursue something like that I mean, you could, you know, every article in the Chronicle could lead you to reach out to somebody if you really were inclined. Uh, what, what inspired you that day? So I think it is, you know, what really interests me about advancement is less the how we do it. You know, I love the data and the analytics. I love all of that. But what interests me a lot more is the why we're doing it. And if we are, I feel like it's important, if I am very clear about who the university is, who our students are, and where we might go, then when whether it's an opportunity like that, where I see something in the Chronicle that really seems to fit with our institution, if there had been another article there about, you know, um, I'm not gonna be able to think of a good example, but I'm sure I've read plenty of other articles, and I've had the same kind of response that you said, which, wow, that's interesting, because it may not be a perfect fit with our institution, and especially we're talking about something that's as unlikely as a family in Texas deciding to invest in the University of Memphis. It really had to be that we had the conviction that, yes, this fits for our university and where we want to go. But that translates just as much to a conversation with somebody who's already very close to us. You know, I talked the other day with a um, a donor who is very generous to the university. We're talking about he and his family's next gift. And the, the, through that conversation, there was a couple of things he said that really clicked for me that, okay, I know the right thing to bring to the table that's really going to speak to their interests and passion. That is much of a, that is as much of a, is this, you know, is this fitting together as it was with that family foundation. I will say that, um, you know, in that instance, just to kind of underscore the point, when I took the proposal to the provost who, you know, I was terrified I'd never spoken to the provost before, and he was a mathematician. This was not a warm, you know, this was not the warm, fuzzy social scientist. He was he was a quintessential mathematician. Um, there was a couple of people that were in his trusted circle who were familiar with the foundation, the family foundation, and said, oh, we shouldn't even bother. Um, I looked at their website, and they said that they only give to universities that are primarily residential, and that's not us, so we shouldn't even bother. And I thought, well, but this matters to us. This could make a difference. How do we, how do, what angle can we take with them? And this was a family that was very interested in having some deep analysis and some good data. And it ended up being compelling to them that we could be a contrast to many of the other universities that they had invested in. You know, how is this working at residential, but how might it work at a, at a university that is primarily commuter? Um, and so that's just, you know, standing by your convictions that you really understand who you are as an institution and the value you bring, whether it's to people locally or nationally. Mm. 
Can you tell me a little bit? I mean, I think one of the most interesting areas of potential in the advancement world, and certainly in the um, in the context of this, you know, hopefully post-pandemic environment we'll be in soon, is given how much technology has changed and that we are all a Zoom link away, a FaceTime away, and we were before, but it's just become such a part, you know, it's become pervasive personally, professionally, and so forth. How do you think about elevating the voices of those first gen students who are being mm -hmm. impacted all the way back to that family foundation in Texas. And it used to be the, the, the scholarship luncheon and all the donors come in, we have a couple students do a speech, they sit at the table and go on about their lives. But how do we think about, you know, not just um, current students, but the benefits of something like first gen access and that family foundation relationship compound over time. And as you think about some of the early members of the, um, you know, the, the folks who are beneficiaries of that work, maybe let's call it in the early 2010s, you know, they're now uh, five or 10 years out of college. How do we continue to show the outcomes, the impact that that gift back in 09, 10, 11 had today? And is there, you know, whether it's by way of video, I mean, a Zoom call with the foundation featuring 10 of the scholars, what is the future of the scholarship dinner where in a lot of cases, maybe they're not going to fly up from Texas for that luncheon because they've got a lot of other relationships. How do we bring that experience digitally in a way that might further inspire them to go bigger and, and, and double down on the work that you all have done together? Well, you asked, I'm, I'm going to make a note about the recent alums because, uh, now I'm thinking about how do we get some of those first scholars together who have graduated that um, I have not thought yes. about before. But I will say that when I transitioned uh, into my role as chief advancement officer, there's a couple of things that I have been very consistent with my team about. And the first is we have got to engage students in everything that we're doing. And of course, this conversation started before the pandemic. And Shortly after I moved into this role, the Alumni Association, which had previously been part of another division, moved under, I was Chief Development Officer, alumni transitioned, and we became the Advancement Division. Um, and one of the things I kept reiterating was, I don't want us to have any wine and cheese receptions with an alumni chapter without having students present and visible. And it goes back to that interest I have in more of the why we are doing what we're doing. Why does higher ed matter? And that certainly is foundational to the how we're going to do it. How are we going to raise money? But I want everyone on my team to be, you know, neck deep in the idea of why. Who cares? Who cares that about anything that we're doing? It's got to come back to first the students. And, and it was a challenge because, you know, we have these events and people didn't know quite how to engage the students in a meaningful way in the process. The pandemic has made, and the technology, the transition of technology has made that a lot easier. And whether that is through thank you, where we are constantly sending, you know, asking students to just make a quick video on their phone and send it to a donor. And it may be a donor that they, um, specifically benefited from their philanthropy, or it could be more broadly speaking, just making sure that our alums see and hear from students. Yes. 
It is including student leaders. You know, we've had a few uh, um, roundtable discussions with the president, some alumni of um, online Zoom events with the, with the president and other administrators. And we've included student leaders in there. And thankfully, you know, I, I, I loved an event we had with our president and the president of our student body. The president was extremely deferential to the president of our, of our student body. And when people would ask questions, turning it over to her to answer the question so people could really hear from her, um, that was more live. And now we're working on a, um, a uh, recording we're going to be sending out rather, again, it can, it can be a challenge to connect specific students to their donors on a regular basis, but we're going to have six or so scholarship recipients in a conversation with each other. One of the students will facilitate, but it's just meant to be the students talking about what their year has been like, how school's going, what they're, you know, and, and talking about why scholarships have mattered, but a little bit less of the straight on video. Thank you. I appreciate right. it. It's made a difference. A little more organic and a real conversation. Yeah. Send out to people who can't come to campus, who um, even when things are back to normal, it may not be convenient for them to come back to campus to really hear the actual voices of our students in a way that is not kind of scripted. Yeah. Um, that is not just for show. Well, a couple of things come to mind. Um, one, I don't know of any chief advancement officers that host podcasts with students. There are a few university president podcasts. Um, but when you talk about how do we elevate the voices, yeah. I think that's the kind of media that we just need to make that shift coming out of the pandemic, right? We featured the student profile in the alumni magazine for decades. We've done the email blast. We've done the web profile, yeah. but there's nothing as authentic as the student voice. And um, and so I hope those are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, given you've got a podcast studio at your house, I'll uh, put you on the spot <laughs> a little bit there. But I think that there's such an opportunity to to just um, create more of those organic discussions, which then, you know, you can cut up into the 30 second or 60 second sound bites and send out to the donors so that they can hear that, um, you know, that authentic voice yeah. and, uh, you know, firsthand. So um, I do want to just double click on one thing you said around thank you and mm -hmm. the idea of um, uh, essentially empowering and prompting more students to send more personalized messages. And I'm more, curious just logistically and maybe there, there are folks in your team who manage that but how does that happen and, and part of what you know I think the big aspiration is imagine a world where someday every single donor gets a legitimate one-to-one -one personalized message from a student at least once a year and what might that do to complement broader annual and major giving stewardship and to continue to hopefully improve retention and reactivation of lap supporters I was having a conversation with Nick Lindy at the University of Nebraska recently, and it's it's just, uh, you know, they have 50,000 students across the system. They also have about 50,000 donors a year. And it's like, how do we leverage this technology mm -hmm. at scale to go one-to-one, -one, 50,000 students to 50,000 donors? It's never going to happen like that, but it is, I think, becoming more and more possible, um, but it's not going to happen without clear vision and, you know, the way you talked about just making students a pillar of your advancement strategy. I love it. Everybody could do it. Not everybody mm -hmm. is doing that today. What advice would you have for peers that are thinking about it? And do you have any anecdotes that have emerged from the work that you've done 
uh, mm -hmm. trying to bring students more directly into that stewardship process? So um, a couple of things come to mind. One is a point that I was going to make earlier about engaging students in the um, with donors and more intentionally in the advancement process. I think it's equally important that we in, that we are engaging the frontline faculty and staff rather than it yeah. necessarily being a buffer between the people that have to, you know, we need these deans, these faculty members, these staff members to deliver on the commitments we've made to donors. And getting to know those individuals can really help um, advance that relationship with the donors when they feel like they have access to the people that are really getting done. They know, they know I'm a fundraiser you know, and they know that that's, um, I, I mean, I feel it's my responsibility to be advocates for our donors, but they know that my day in day out life is not interacting with students. So I, I, I point that out because those relationships across campus have been critical to our ability to make those connections to students. Yeah. From the development office is reaching out to students and asking them to, you know, send in a quick video we're not going to get the same kind of response as the, um, you know, the dean of students who works with students all the time. And so, having those relationships across campus, where people feel like we really are their advocates and we really are trying to help them, has been really important. It's it's still very ad hoc because we do have stronger relationships in some colleges and programs than in others. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I would say that. What that means for us right now is that we leverage those connections that we do have, perhaps yeah. benefit programs where we don't have the same connection. So as an example, I talked about the Dean of Students. We have a program at the university called Emerging Leaders that is in the Dean of Students office. Those students are from across the university. So if I don't have a, a great connection with a faculty member, a dean, um, a department chair in one specific college where it might be harder to make the connection with those students, I might be able to make the connection with them through a university-wide program. And sending those messages out where it may not be that I got the Smith scholarship and I'm sending a message to Mr. Smith, but we know that Mr. Smith is interested in this kind of student in general and hearing from a student like that. Right. It's a great place to start, even if we can't have a perfect match. The totally. Thing, to your point, just start doing it. Just start sending those messages out from students and not get too hung up on, is this, you know, is this person going to be hearing from the student that got their scholarship this specific year? Yeah, and I think longer term, that's where as a technology vendor and partner in the space and as a part of this broader ecosystem, we've got to figure out how to make that possible. And we will continue to work at it. But in the meantime, we've taken big strides over the last couple of years in what's possible. Just get after it, get started, and we can refine over time. Um, one thing that comes to mind is you, there are so many companies. and you know, I'm in the startup space, have been for a long time. I just recently had somebody reach out and say, hey, Brent, we're launching a new service. It's a financial technology platform that's geared towards college students. Uh, do you have... Uh, relationships with your uh, customers that might help um, us activate brand ambassadors. And 
we really don't. Um, but I oftentimes get those kinds of inquiries from other entrepreneurs. But it does come to mind that like the idea of a campus brand ambassador has become such a source of growth for direct to consumer companies, apparel companies, you name it. Um, this idea of like the student campus rep influencer is so common. And that's kind of what you're describing is like, how do we have a brand ambassador for the University of Memphis? And it's like all these other companies coming to our campuses, getting our students to advocate on their behalves. How do we activate the student voice in a more kind of creative and consistent way in the advancement state? I think it's a huge opportunity because mm -hmm. uh, it just, it's entertaining, it's authentic, it's real. Um, even though I think a lot of times advancement has been so scripted and it's gotta be the polish and the professionalization and the perfect campaign kickoff and the excellent proofreading. How do you kind of seed a little bit of that control and um, polish to something that is more authentic and organic? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so, we try, you know, just, I'm reiterating the point, but as advancement professionals, we're trying to curate that experience for donors, but donors are human beings. They know that our faculty and our students are human beings. They know that it's not always right. going to be perfect and that can lead to more sincerely connected relationships. Yeah. We I just want it. to know a little bit of that need for the, the, the perfection. Well, I think your point, you can always test and you're going to make mistakes yeah. and that's okay. And uh, I, I think as long as we can um, move forward uh, and really learn from the successes and celebrate the successes. Um, I do just want to ask, uh, you know, hearkening back to your liberal arts education, you studied history, you worked at a library. I'm going to guess you're a reader. And so uh, tell me a little bit about where you find inspiration in your work um, you know, not only kind of within the advancement community, but outside. Um, I also see your massive bookshelf behind you. So, yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. we have a lot of books here. So I'm a big fiction reader, a big crime fiction reader. So that does not necessarily uh, translate to <laughs> my work, thankfully. Um, but I also am someone, I'm, I am the person my staff is most likely to send them a hey, here's a new study, here's a, you know, here's an article, here's a podcast to listen to. And mostly those things that I am, I am interested in that I feel like relate to my work are not about advancement specifically. Um, one of, something that I'm very interested in, and I think I, I mentioned Raj Chetty in my, um, in my advanced materials, who's the economist um, behind Opportunity Insights is how do we better understand the world around us in a way that translates to what our donors and students experiences can be. And when we think about Opportunity Insights and Raj Chetty, we're thinking about social mobility and the higher education as a and especially a regional public like ours, what we what it means for our students to get a college degree in a way that is different from students that come from high-income households um, getting a college degree. So I binge podcasts. I love Planet Money. I love Freakonomics. I listen to The Indicator every day um, and try to keep up with all of those. You know, I'm going to read The Economist, um, keep up with, with the news. 
and um, just think about how that influences the people around me that I'm working with. And it, I'm sure, shapes your perspective on the future of the sector. I mean, I think that's why, you know, on a personal level, I'm always trying to learn from great marketing organizations, great sales organizations, thinking about ways that digital uh, technologies and strategies are reshaping marketing, sales, and customer success. What does that mean for alumni relations development and stewardship? And um, I'm just curious to get your perspective when, you know, you've, you've been at uh, University of Memphis for 13 years, you've been in the in the sector for even longer. When you think about where we are, especially in this inflection point in the midst of the pandemic, where are we where had we been or where have we been over investing? And what do you think that means for the future of, you know, how you spend your limited resources to build relationships, raise revenue and pursuit of the mission? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I talk about the why we do what we do, why higher education matters, being a foundation, we're building, what we're building on top of that are, are effective programs that are using data and analytics, that are using effective communications and outreach. You know, you're talking about the marketing sales strategies. Um, and I think certainly I'm not alone in having the experience in this pandemic of realizing that we need to shift where some of our resources are going. And not just in the life of this pandemic, but afterward. We are not gonna spend at the University of Memphis as much money on in-person events and travel as we did previously. Um, now that we can make that connection with the one person in Kansas City that it's worth visiting, but there's nobody else in Kansas City that we have a relationship with. We're not gonna send someone there. We've got other ways to connect with those people. So thinking about how we reallocate those resources, I think we think we are thinking about how we use it to reach more people in a meaningful way. And as you well know, you know, we are thinking about that donor experience officer, that digital engagement officer, um, and how do we use that technology to better reach more people? At the University of Memphis, we, you know, a real gap that we are addressing as we move into a campaign is that mid-level donor. And then certainly the many thousands of constituents who we don't have a connection, we don't have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with, but the, the analytics show us could be good donors. Yeah. So well, there's got to be more volume outreach, but not in a way that is just, it's got to be personal. Right. Yeah. No, I think that uh, we've always talked about this being a relationship business, but all the data suggests that maybe 2% of prospects actually have a relationship manager mm -hmm. at an institution. So for 98% of us, it's a transactional business, even if we keep calling it a relationship business. And right. I think that's the opportunity of the pandemic for sure is how do we scale actual relationship building? And it could be as simple as scaling one video message from one student to 50,000 donors per year as the most kind of high volume, least personal, but still more personal than what we're doing today. And then I think different shades of personalization up to the principal gift prospects at the very top who, you know, maybe their experience won't change that much, though I do think even from a student access and stewardship perspective, we've got an opportunity to even transform that uh, high-end experience at the top of the pyramid. And part of it, I mean, you said we're not gonna spend as much money on travel and events. 
And so there's an element of you're not going to spend that money. So what do you spend that money on instead? But the other thing that I'm excited about is you're also not going to spend that time. And when you think about the time for the existing staff that went into creating those events or went into that trip to Kansas City, take, take away new hires or new roles, what is that existing staff going to do with that extra 12 hours or 24 hours or 36 hours that would have taken them to get to Kansas City and back? And how do we think about even those roles being able to build more relationships with the same amount of time because donors are more accessible uh, in this medium, for example. So that's an area that I think is gonna have to cause traditional gift officer metrics to be totally reimagined because so many of those metrics were rooted in time on the way to the airport, time at the airport, delays, time getting from city to city, cancellations. If you take out all of that time, what does that mean for the future of visit goals, for example? Right, and for that very reason, you know, we are in, we are putting together our campaign plan to ramp up the campaign over the next few years um, in anticipation of going public in about uh, 2023. So as I put that plan together about where we need those resources to go, go, I'm not starting from we need more major gift officers. Where we are starting from is what resources do we need so that our frontline fundraisers can be more effective with the team we have right now. And those, that's exactly what you're talking about. Are we maximizing the time and energy of our existing team? And part of that is, do they have the data they need? Do they have the support they need? Do they have the technology they need to be able to execute in a different way than they would have two years ago? Then no, it's uh, how do we how do we have more staff using those, using that um, blueprint for how do we make the most of, of their time? Yeah, look, I think that the way that we've historically thought about staffing an advancement organization, right? We've looked at the giving pyramid. We've said how many people are up there? What's the ratio of officers per those people? That implies the number of officers we should hire. And I just think all of those ratios are going to change so much. And um, you know, maybe for a few people, it still looks like I've got 50 or 100 people in my portfolio. But I, I think that given the time savings around event and travel that hopefully persists, it's going to change the ratio of officer to portfolio size without sacrificing quality and in some ways improving it. We hope to be a part of that, but it's going to take, you know, uh, real leadership because I think there are probably other folks who are like, you know, we hear it. I, I'm an old dog. Can't wait to get back out there. Can't wait for things to get back to normal. Uh, yeah. And that scares me a little bit because I feel like it would be such a missed opportunity uh, to not really um, pragmatically rethink some of those strategies coming out of this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I want to be sensitive of time. Exactly. You reference ramping up for the campaign. Um, are you hiring? If people want to stay in touch with you, what's the best way for them to connect with you, Joanna? Um, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm very happy to connect on LinkedIn. Um, I'm also accessible via email. My email address is jecurtis at memphis.edu. Uh, we have, we're doing a little bit of hiring now. We're back into hiring mode, but we expect to be expanding our team more um, as we approach the new fiscal year, um, which for us is July 1. So I look forward to anyone who's interested in Memphis, University of Memphis, reaching out.
Well, we really appreciate your time. And I just have to say, interacting with your team, uh, you're an inspiring leader. You, you, you commented so many times about your introversion. I, I'm not totally buying it, but uh, <laughs> really um, just appreciate the time and perspective you shared with us, with our audience. Uh, and uh, I have to say that your just comments about the, the passion and the fact that you can't fake it. I mean, that just comes up time and time again. Mm -hmm. I wish you nothing but the best as you continue uh, to make an impact for the Memphis community, for the first gen, for the uh, low income, um, because we definitely need it uh, now uh, as much as ever. So uh, with that, I thank you, Joanna. Uh, Brent here signing off from Tucson with today's episode of the Race Podcast. Take care. Mm -hmm.